Ah, so here we are with the second episode in the Wound Masterclass podcasts. And this one is incorporating innovation into clinical practice. Are you excited about this one, Alec? Um, definitely, yes. Had some a very good um, feedback after the first episode. Yeah, we had some really nice comments, didn't we? We're sort of, uh, people enjoyed that conversation. And, you know, for the listeners to this one, if you've missed that first episode, it's uh, downloadable on. It's available on all the major podcast platforms. And you can find all those links on woundmasterclass.com slash podcast. This is our second in the series. Um, and Alec and I are going to be your co-hosts for this one. And it's incorporating innovation into clinical practice. There's been lots of innovation, hasn't there, in recent years in the field of wound care. I think it's uh, really quite exciting. Yeah, it's really remarkable just the speed at which innovation has been brought into particularly wound care, but I guess in into also reconstructive um, surgery and the reconstructive fields. But I think more so in wound care, you know, there's new dressings coming out almost um, at, at such a fast pace and new technologies, there's new sort of um, ways of stimulating wound healing for that wound that's stalled or the, the challenging wound. Um, so it's really, you know, I think that's part of the attraction of of this field is just keeping abreast that innovation um, because the speed at which it's, it's evolving is just really, really remarkable. And I think, you know, from our perspective, I guess, from me and you, we're trying to find out from our guests today, how do they know which innovation to incorporate into their clinical practice or how do they go about deciding, you know, what modalities they're going to incorporate into the clinical clinical practice and essentially, you know, which patients are going to choose timing wise. Do they wait till the wound is, is at a stage where it's stalled or try and bring some of these innovations in early? And what about using innovations alongside other innovations? So sort of, utilizing the synergy of two new techniques essentially and you know obviously all of this is under the umbrella of evidence-based practice and evidence-based medicine so um it all has to be supported within within that sphere certainly mm -hmm. so alec let's talk a little bit about our guests for this podcast Yes, we're joined by Dr. Wendy Cole, who is a podiatrist from Ohio. Yeah, and joining Wendy is a plastic surgeon called Dr. Martin Johnson, Marty. And he's an interesting expert. He's been in, had been in private practice in Phoenix and Scottsdale area for over 30 years and was involved with many multiple hospitals in that area, in the area of wound care, including the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix. But currently, Dr. Johnson's actually at the Casa Kalina Hospital and the Centers for Healing in Pomona, California. And there he leads a limb preservation clinic with a focus on amputation prevention and wound healing. And, you know, really interesting chap, isn't he? I mean, he's you know, decades of experience in this in this field. He's been a clinician that's been um, kind of very enthusiastic about embracing innovation in his clinical practice and it could be you know it's really interesting to talk to him about how he decides what kind of innovation to bring into his clinical practice um, so that's who we have so I think it's going to be a great podcast yeah absolutely 
So here is that conversation with Dr. Wendy Cole and Dr. Martin Johnson. Welcome to the Wound Masterclass podcast. We're really honoured to have Dr. Johnson joining us and Dr. Wendy Cole. So thank you very much for joining us for this session on bringing innovation into clinical practice. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank this you. Will be great. great. Now we're really really looking forward to having a really frank discussion about uh, the challenges of bringing an innovative product into your clinical practice. Uh, so Dr. Johnson, you have you have a quite a varied plastic surgery practice. Are you able to tell us a little bit about your current clinical practice? Why, sure. Uh, currently, I'm, I'm uh, working at Casa Colina Hospital in uh, Pomona, California. It is a uh, primarily a rehabilitation hospital, but we, there's been a wound and hyperbaric center here for about 20 years. Uh, about a year ago, they embarked on developing a uh, limb preservation program, and we are affiliated with Dr. David Armstrong at Keck USC. And he's actually the reason I'm here. Uh, uh, I'm a plastic surgeon. I previously uh, was at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, uh, developing a wound uh, center there. Uh, and prior to that, for 30 years, I had a uh, plastic surgery practice in the Phoenix area, Phoenix, Arizona. So I, I, I'm probably the oldest one here on the, on the uh, <laughs> table or on the, the, the offering here today. But uh, so yes, I have, I have done general plastic surgeon microsurgery in, in, in the past. I have uh, uh, currently, uh, I no longer do cosmetic surgery, and uh, my efforts are devoted towards wounds with a, a special interest in the diabetic foot. Interesting. So some of your clinical practice will include venous leg ulceration patients as well, as well as the DFU patients, presumably. And yeah. I guess some of these challenging, hard-to-heal patient groups as well. But we, we like to say in plastic surgery that our domain is the skin and its contents. So, you know, it can be anything from uh, currently from a wound due to a skin cancer or radiation, or as you mentioned, venous leg ulcers, uh, diabetic foot ulcers, pressure injuries. We're in a rehabilitation facility here. We see too many pressure injuries. And, uh, and then some of the uh, unusual, you know, wounds to pyodermic gangrenosum and, and uh, things like hydroxyurea wounds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, it keeps me stimulated. Interesting, yeah. I mean, I think plastic surgery practice uh, over in the UK and Europe is maybe slightly different in terms of the scope of patients we see um, in that practice. But I, I guess, you know, over the years, over the decades, you will have used quite a lot of different wound care products. You've got you such know, a vast I am, experience. I am uh, of enough of an age that uh, in, when I started in plastic surgery, we used wet to dry dressings. You know, that was the gold mm -hmm. standard at that point. And uh, I look back and some of the things that we added to them, whether it was betadine or Dakin solution or peroxide or many other things that we now recognize are toxic to keratinocytes and fibroblasts, you know. So once I started, you know, getting into this wound care space, I was uh, able to learn about many, many new products that actually help healing as opposed to hinder healing. 
I think we're really lucky that more recently there's a lot of biologically active technologies that are kind of entering into the space that are light years above, you know, the wet to dry and the betadine. So I'm really excited to get into some of these technologies and learn about your experience today. Okay. The, um, you know, as I have evolved, I like to say, uh, you know, away from uh, wet to dry dressings, you know, I have trialed many, many uh, products uh, in the uh, in the biologic space, for instance, uh, I, I've used cellular and tissue-based products. Um, uh, when I was at the Mayo Clinic, there were a few restrictions on what you could bring in. Um, I was an early uh, uh, user of the uh, PRP in the form of 3C patch. I, I did that at Mayo Clinic, and then I, when I came to California a year ago, I brought that. And then uh, more recently, you know, I was uh, introduced to uh, uh, the synthetic skin substitutes and primarily the, what we're talking about today, the boron-based bioactive glass, which uh, as if you talked to me this time last year or even last summer, I, I would have you know, scratched my head and said, what are you talking about? You know, you can make fiberglass uh, into a product that uh, uh, is absorbable. So, um, I, you know, my, my, I like to be uh, stimulated by new products if I think that they can offer better patient care and better patient outcomes. Obviously, there are some um, potential limitations at times. Uh, I have a chief financial officer here, and I had one at the, at the Mayo Clinic. We all and, have someone like that, don't we? Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> the the gatekeeper, the bean counter, if you want to, uh, you know. <laughs> so that that does limit, you know. But if if you can show them that uh, this is either a product that uh, is reimbursable, or it, the new products are reimbursable or uh, that uh, you can shorten patient uh, time to healing, uh, it's a little bit of an easier sell, especially if there is science uh, behind it. Um, it, it uh, I think it, you know, it just, it makes it, uh, I think it makes it interesting. Uh, it, as I say, it keeps me stimulated. And more importantly, I'm, I'm seeing really strong results with, uh, with our patients, you know, and, and uh, you know, I know we're talking some today about this new category that uh, um, is out there, you know, with the boron-based uh, bioabsorbable uh, glass, uh, and and uh, it it has multiple uh, benefits. Uh, in some form, it's been present in the space in in wound space, especially the orthopedic space, for over three decades. So I mean, there is a a track record for you know a product like this. Um, and it, it uh, you know, I, I recently became part of a, a 12 center uh, randomized control trial to uh, determine its additional benefits in the treatment of diabetic foot ulcers. There was a previous paper that was put out uh, uh, with David Armstrong as the lead author uh, with an N of 40 patients that showed a significantly short, shorter healing time using the boron-based uh, bioabsorbable glass for the treatment of diabetic foot ulcers. So currently what, what uh, they're doing is expanding it to an N of between 100 and 240. So I'm, I'm both happy and excited to be a part of that and, and you know, being able to witness some of the benefits that we're seeing you know, with our patients for that. Are you able to tell us, Dr. Johnson, in terms of 
I think our readers and viewers, listeners would be really interested to know when you're bringing a new innovation like that into your clinical practice, when you're thinking about designing that trial, the one that you, you mentioned, how, how do you go about setting that up in terms of your clinical practice? So can you tell us a little bit about how you build the evidence for a new product? Well, I, in this particular case, I'm relying on the, the uh, people working on this before I got involved. You know, the, the, in the wound space, it's uh, I think over two years that uh, the article that was uh, presented by uh, Dr. Armstrong et al. You know, showed the N of 40 and that there was a significant uh, uh, shortening of, of time to heal for these difficult wounds. Um, I look at it as, you know, what am I comparing the time to heal to, you know, and, and you know, whether it's yeah. a collagen dressing or whether it's, you know, something even, you know, simpler than that. Um, we don't necessarily have the, the luxury to do a standalone trial where I'm going to compare it on my own, you know, a new product versus uh, one of the other biologic cellular and tissue products, um, you know, that, the, the cost and the, and the time, you know, to try to get an end of whatever, 50, 60, or 100 within the clinic, I don't think that the, uh, the chief financial officer is going to, going to allow that. Plus, I have an IRB that I have, uh, an institutional review board here at the facility that, that has to sign off on it, everything. So I would have to, uh, you know, run it up the flagpole, so to speak, with them too. And I am not sure that, you know, unless it was funding that, that I would be able to take that on on my own. But that said, if we can look for the, um, the evidence that's out there and, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, people are, are trying it different, in different ways. I mean, the, this particular uh, focus was on diabetic foot ulcers, but, you know, what is the most common wound that we see in most wound clinics? You know, it's going to be a venous leg ulcer, you know, and I think there may be application there. Uh, we're trying to work with people uh, in our uh, physical medicine and rehab uh, department, uh, see if I can get the residents inter interested. Can we use it as a trial for say pressure injuries, you know, at, at different stages, maybe, you know, uh, you know, a stage one or two, so that they don't become a, a three or four. I'm, I'm also curious uh, using it uh, uh, in the operating room. I think that there, there are going to be potential uh, applications there. I mean, as a plastic surgeon, we do we do a lot of different things and, mm -hmm. and uh, touch a lot of different types of wounds, some acute, some chronic. And I'd be curious to see, you know, if there's a benefit there. I'm, I've kind of floated the idea of, you know, for donor sites, you know, for both right. uh, flaps and skin grafts. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've used it on, on a couple of patients for that and been reasonably impressed with, you know, the the rapidity with which we can we can uh, heal some of these wounds. So interesting. And what sort of groups of patients were you kind of choosing to try this sort of new technology? As in, what types of patients would you think right that would be someone who would benefit from a new innovation or a new wound care product? Well, it, it would be the difficult to heal wounds. If it is somebody who's coming in with a you know a simple laceration, I'm not sure that I would necessarily you know, apply that. Uh, if it's a simple, you know, uh, 
uncomplicated uh, skin cancer excision with a primary closure, probably not there. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, some of these more difficult wounds, you know, whether it's the longstanding diabetic foot ulcer, you know, if they're offloaded properly and they're still not closing, um, if it's a venous leg ulcer that, you know, has been adequately evaluated for both arterial and venous uh, uh, studies and still we're having difficulty. Um, and, and using it in, com in combination with, you know, offloading, if you're talking about the diabetic foot, uh, two-layer compression wrap, uh, if you're talking about venous leg ulcers. And then where I guess I, I especially get challenged is uh, some of the more unusual or difficult uh, type of wounds. You know, pyoderma is one that sticks in my mind. I mean, pyoderma gangrenosum. For the 30 years, I was, I like to call myself a beautician. I did a lot of cosmetic surgery. Um, <laughs> You know, I never saw it, uh, but, you know, opened my doors at, at the Mayo Clinic and, and uh, probably because that was a tertiary referral center, you know, I right. was, you know, some days I would see a half dozen patients with it, including patients who had had cosmetic surgery elsewhere. Right. So, I mean, you know, and, and the, the challenge in, in, in treating that. So if there's something that you can, you know, look at possibly being able to benefit I mean, obviously, many of these patients are going to require medical care also, whether it's, you know, prednisone, whether it's, uh, you know, a systemic, systemic treatment. Yeah. Exactly. And what, sort of what percentage do you think of those wounds that are difficult to heal were actually potential to have, you know, have pyoderma as as the etiology? I mean, in well, our clinical practice, we often see patients which who fit that group of being difficult to heal. And again, it's one of those diagnoses that. I think that pyoderma is, is uh, probably an underdiagnosed condition and probably a little bit of it is because we don't necessarily think about it right away. And I think another reason is there's not a, uh, if you were to do a punch biopsy, you know, it, it's not a diagnosis that's going to come back and says, this is pyoderma. pyoderma right? What do they say? It's they say diagnosis you know, of exclusion mostly, right. right? You're ruling out exactly. all the other things and then you're like, right. okay, maybe yeah. this is pyoderma. They um, always have that, that famous line at the end of the pathology report yeah. that says, you know, please, you know. Cannot rule please, out pyoderma. <laughs> please correspond this with your clinical findings, which is yeah, frustrating. And, and, I, and I have a couple of patients that I've used it on with uh, longer standing, for instance, hydroxyurea uh, therapy, which, uh, you know, they've been on for, uh, you know, some myeloproliferative, you know, polycythemia or something mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, they come in with these painful uh, ulcers and, you know, nothing seems to help other, even when they're taken off of that drug, you know, but uh, I, right. actually using the Mirogen product, I've got two patients that uh, we were able to heal, you know, one very quickly. Uh, the and he had had that for almost a year, and then the other one took longer, you know. But uh, eventually, you know, came Turn, to turned a corner, yeah. And Dr. Cole, how about you? When you're bringing an innovative product into your clinical practice, what sort of criteria do you have in your mind? Obviously, in consideration yeah. for for choosing to think right. Okay, I think of all the armamentarium that I have in my wound care toolbox. I feel like I need a new innovative product. What sort of what's what decision making is going through your mind clinically? 
Yeah, I think we're always looking for the next best thing, right? And and uh, to fill a niche or a void that we already have in our toolbox, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we mentioned that the wounds that we treat are chronic and non-healing, right? So they're not on a healing trajectory. They're not following that pre-planned uh, four stages of the wound healing cascade. So we need something to move them from wherever they're stalled in, back onto that healing trajectory, right? So we're always looking for something new and innovative. You know, I was uh, interested and turned on by Merigen or Borate Bioactive Glass a a little while ago as well. Um, I think it's very interesting and innovative because we're looking at this whole section of bioactive materials and kind of man-made bioactive materials. Uh, They have some pros and cons that, you know, some of the other products that are currently available in the space don't have a lot more pros and I'm sure Dr. Johnson will discuss because he has a lot more clinical experience with the Mirogen product but you know we're looking for something that's easy to use that's cost effective that is you know effective clinically for our patients uh, and we're looking for a, a product that will help to support tissue repair and regeneration all the things we need to help to uh turn on the light, so to speak, with cellular senescence, cellular proliferation, differentiation, angiogenesis, all of these things we know are lacking installed in chronic wounds. So I just, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about Dr. Johnson's experience with the borate bioactive glass and and why you feel it's an exciting and new scaffold. I know you mentioned that you've learned a lot in the past year or so. And so I'm interested in learning a little bit more about how you fit it in your algorithm as well. I don't think that it's a, a you know a first line treatment. You know, I, I might have been close to that on a couple of patients, you know, just while I was learning about it and I had, sure. I had some sampling. Um, and and you know the, the toolbox tends to be big, you know, oftentimes because not every every dressing or product is going to work for every patient. It's so not a one size fits all, huh? Yes, and that's so why I like it. I'm sure you do too, because you just never know. You have to you have to right. figure out what's going on for that individual patient, right? So right. And 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 you know there's you know what else do I look for? Uh, you know, I mean there are some products or, or techniques that uh, are very time consuming. And if you have a busy clinic, are you going to be able to tie up a, a room or a bed for 45 minutes to an hour to to uh, to provide this, um, you know, storage. Uh, you know, some of the products need freezers, some need refrigerators, some have to be reconstituted. Uh, with Merigen, it's uh, at least a five-year shelf stable. You know, so it's just uh, you know, if you're looking for ease of use, if you're looking for efficiency in a busy clinic, you know, if you can reach up to the, you know, in the cabinet and take something out that, I mean, it literally, uh, it, once the bed is wounded, is prepared, it doesn't take, you know, a moment to moisten a, a dry bed. If it's a wet bed, you just leave it there, you put it on, it's, uh, it's porous enough that the exit aid comes through. If you need to moisten it with the, you know, I use a hydrogel oftentimes if it's a really dry wound. Um, the the if you look at what I've seen under the microscope, that the the, uh, 
there's two parts to this absorbable glass. There's a, a fibrin network that looks an awful lot like the fibrin at the start of the, uh, the uh, clotting cascade. And I understand that that is the, the part that uh, probably dissolves pretty quickly, you know, is very quickly absorbed. And then there are some uh, smaller pieces that hang around up to 40 day, 45 days, I'm told. And again, I'm not the scientist. Uh, there, there's a fellow back in rural Missouri, Steve, Steve Young, that uh, he, he knows all this stuff. He's into ceramics and glass. And, and uh, you know, it's a silicate uh, that is bioabsorbable. As I say, it's been in the orthopedic space for three decades. Uh, it's interesting because it, it, it has natural elements. I mean, boron, for instance, uh, the, the borate, it's 53% of it. And it, uh, uh, it's believed that it stimulates angiogenesis. I've seen an incredibly robust uh, granulation uh, form, you know, in wounds that were stalled. And uh, within a couple of applications, suddenly you go from that pink slimy look to a you know, robust red granular look. Uh, they are doing some work now that suggests that it's uh, very active and effective against biofilm. And I personally have seen patients that, uh, you know, they have some of these VLUs that come in with the, the green on their dressing and you can smell it. And from a mile away, and everything else. <laughs> and literally within a, a couple of applications, uh, two to three applications, the green is gone, the odor is gone, and you have this robust granulation. You know, so it drops the borate, it, it, uh, calcium, which is, you know, one of the initial uh, ions that we're going to need to, again, stimulate that healing cascade. That, that uh, is, is a big part of it. Uh, you know, it's water soluble. You, you don't have something that uh, when, when you look at the wound, say, a week later, and you, you gently wash it, whatever residue is there, you leave alone. It, uh, there you, you may not be seeing the, uh, the granular wound because it is being incorporated into the wound as the granulation forms. So you have to learn that a little bit because you know you want. So you to. don't debride necessarily in between applications. You leave it be, and do you no. apply on top of it then again? Or then I just I just cleanse it and and, and reapply it. Uh, just anecdotally, we when we first started using it, uh, one of the the our podiatrist who works with us, she would take and and take the uh, curette to the wound. Oh, I know because that's what we love to do, right? Yeah. And so what happens is. <laughs> you see this incredibly robust granulation and guess what? The patients bleed now. Yeah. And so <laughs> once we stopped doing that, the patient didn't leave a trail of blood when she was, you know, home. And um, it, it's, uh, you know, it makes this scaffolding that, you know, we, we want for our, our, uh, our healing to proceed. I mean, that's my understanding. Part of the reason we use different collagen-based dressings, you know, part two. Uh, you know, let the MMP scavenge it, but also to have that scaffolding there to, to allow both the granulation and the epithelialization to occur. I, it, I just have seen a great deal of uh, uh, tissue growth in wounds that, you know, have been there a long time. I will say that the chronic wounds do respond a bit more slowly, which is not surprising. Some of the acute wounds that I've seen, I mean, within 10 days, you know, with a, you know, somebody who had a large abscess on their, on their uh, elbow. And, you know, I just packed some irrigin in there. And, you know, within 10 days, it was not only closed, it was closed. And uh, so, you know, several, several instances like that, I've got 
I've used it on some uh, donor sites for both flaps and grafts that uh, have responded much more quickly than I thought and didn't need secondary procedures. You know, a skin graft donor site, uh, you know, that, that's among the more painful uh, uh, wounds that we can create as surgeons. You know, I mean, where you put the skin graft usually doesn't hurt anymore, but that split thickness skin site, graft. Yeah. That split thickness skin grab donor site, you know, I mean, they don't like you for a couple of weeks, you know, and, and no matter like the what worst sunburn they ever had, probably, right? That's what yeah, a lot of people so, yeah, used to <laughs> like and skin their knees. Uh, mm. But I've used it on, on uh, a couple of patients for that. And uh, it was amazing at four days, mm. there, no pain. It's, I, I think that's still a work in progress. Again, it's, it's, so I'm, I'm, I use samples on that. I, we, we'd have to figure out, you know, how that would, would uh, work in the operating room on a regular basis. But uh, I've, I've, for 40 years, I've been looking for the, the better or best or perfect dressing for the skin graft donor sites because the, there's tremendous morbidity with that. And if you're not careful, you end up with you know a full thickness wound there and and, and the like. So yeah, and we don't want to be responsible for causing a wound while we're I, trying to heal a wound, right? I like tell patients that we are you know a, a wound clinic, but we try not to create wounds. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you you've brought some slides of some cases. Megan, is it a good idea now to to have uh, them share those and go through? I'd be I think happy that would be to do that. So these are yeah. I, I've, I've used it in probably about 35 patients now and about 42 different wounds. And these are just some representative examples of some of the, the, uh, the applications that I- I got I, a sneak peek at them and they're, they're pretty impressive. So I can't wait for you to walk us through them. Okay, so whenever you'd like. Nice. So this, this is a uh, story of a uh, patient who is about 74 years old. She was uh, uh, native to Mexico. She had had this wound and we could never determine nor could her family determine the exact etiology. Was it a bug bite? Was it trauma? Uh, was it something else? And it had been there over a year. She had been using, um, let's just say local homeopathic type of remedies. And her daughter finally said, you know, enough. We're, you know, that's not working. Can we please bring you in? So the initial photograph here, uh, that yellow is not just slough, that is the bone there. So oh, we got wow. x-rays, we, we ruled out osteomyelitis. This I should uh, add is uh, on the inner pretibial area. Uh, was somewhat painful. Uh, she surprisingly had never had an infection or, or cellulitis. As I said, I got x-rays, there was no evidence of osteomyelitis. So we did the cleaning that, that we could and uh, started applying the Miragen. And you can see there a month later, we're starting to see a little bit of improvement in it. And uh, this was simply a, and probably every other week, just because of logistics of having her come into the clinic, uh, we would apply Miragen. It was a, a small amount. It was you know about the size of the end of my little finger. The actual product is very interesting to work with. Uh, if you look at it, you know, and again, if you can think about you know, bioactive resorbable glass. Most people are going to think of either a glass window pane or they're going to think of the fiberglass insulation that's that's in their house. Well, this comes out, and when you when you remove it from the packaging, it uh, it has a consistency almost like uh, cotton candy. It's very fibrous. It's very thin. Uh, uh, if you, it's not it's not going to blow away. But it, if it's a dry wound, you have to be careful so it doesn't uh, fall away. 
And uh, sounds like it's malleable though. So for a deep is, one like this, it would be able to pack it. Is that right? That is what I did. So you pack okay. it, you leave it there, you let it drop its boron, its calcium, its magnesium, and you know, hopefully it's working on the biofilm and reducing that. And I think it did because in less than two months, this wound was now closed. That This photograph has a little bit of white still on it. That's just the residual mirogen from an application two weeks before. And uh, when I first started seeing her in October, I mean, she would barely let me get close to the wound, even if I did a topical anesthetic or injected. I mean, it was, it was very painful and it no longer is. There's no longer any drainage. And, uh, you know, a year plus of having this, we have now closed this wound. So I, I thought the fact that it was down to bone and we were able to granulate over that and, uh, you know, eventually come to, to closure was, was, I think that's pretty impressive. I'm not sure what else I could have pulled out of the toolbox that was gonna let me do that. No, um, in two months, that's, that's definitely impressive. So, how often how often did you change the dressing, Dr. Johnson, on this patient? I mean, how long would you typically leave in this sort of clinical scenario where obviously there's inflammation, there's bone at the base of the wound, and it's what looks like quite a deep cavity with, I guess, punched out edges was, in terms of induration? It was about 1.2 centimeters deep. Right. And uh, I would change this about every two to three weeks. I think I could have done it more frequently. But it was just there were transportation issues and and the like. So we did this. Let's let's call on average about every other week we we would apply the product. And how flexible is it in terms of being used with other adjuncts in wound care? So are you able to, for instance, use topical oxygen over that dressing, or are you able to I, use any other adjuncts? I think you could, uh, I have a couple of patients that we have used it with hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I had a 95 year old patient who uh, had a transmetatarsal amputation that uh, dehissed and uh, we would, we were able to uh, uh, pack his wound. He actually had, uh, let's see, the lateral aspect of the uh, incision dehissed and then there was tunneling of five centimeters towards the first metatarsal head and uh, or first metatarsal and uh, combining that with the hyperbaric oxygen therapy within uh, three and a half to four weeks, the tunneling was gone, zero. And the, the other wound uh, was nearly epithelialized and contracted. And about two weeks after that, he was, he was, he was good. He, uh, he had no more drainage. It was, uh, I thought that was impressive too. You know, he had originally been sent to us for hyperbaric oxygen therapy because of the, you know, the poor circulation in, in his dorsal flap after the transmetatarsal amputation. Again, 95 year old man, he did not want to have a BK amputation. So we, we felt that we had done, done a good job there. Um, and he was growing out an E. coli. Oh, at wow. the time of his dehiscence, and he was never placed on antibiotics, either oral or parenteral. It was, uh, again, I'm not saying that it's a, it's an alternative to antibiotics, but I, I, I do think that there is a significant my, uh, antimicrobial effect here. And they're, they, they, I know they're working in, in the lab on that to, uh, to try to, uh, you know, define, you know, what, what the tend of the whatever log kill is there for that. So, but this was one case, uh, out of the 30 some that, that we've done. I believe, Wendy, there's another one down there. Yeah, and I was I was thinking you could probably utilize this under negative pressure wound therapy oh, sure. too, right? 
because it's a scaffold, you would think then it gives that granulation tissue something to kind of latch onto. And if it does have some bactericidal properties, we know that when we take off a wound vac, sometimes we just smell the bacteria. It's just the perfect breeding ground. So it might be well utilized in negative. Have you used it that way? I have okay. used it on, on several inpatients, yes. Okay. Yes. So, so, this, uh, so Dr. Johnson, you, sorry, you, so you used the Mirogen dressing and then on top of that, what did you use? Um, I was using uh, a, uh, let's see, either a foam dressing or I was using a, a I don't know if we're supposed to say brand names, I, I used a self-adaptive dressing that that uh, used also and that's one that I picked up, you know, from my nurses at the Mayo Clinic who were a lot smarter than I am. And it, it was one, you know, that if it's a dry wound, it adds moisture. If it's a wet wound, it, it's uh, highly yeah. absorbent. So I, I, I used that there also, yes. Right, thank you. So this next patient uh, is a young man who came to us uh, for uh, treating uh, his venous leg ulcer. He had, this was the, he had not had one in six years. Uh, and he came in with the, uh, his primary worry was he had, he would play poker most nights for, and sit there for six hours. And so he had this draining wound here that uh, we, uh, uh, he wanted us to treat. So we, you know, did the vascular workup, uh, took a while to get him into a vascular surgeon. Uh, this was uh, multiple applications of uh, Mirogen coupled with uh, the corrugation you see there is, uh, I've gotten into the uh, Winkler's product, uh, edema wear. And the fuzzy whale, so that the it- Fuzzy whale, yeah. Dr. Mark Malone introduced me to that. <laughs> yeah, and, it's uh, good stuff. <laughs> I, I, I've grown to love it. You know, it's mm -hmm. another one of those innovative products new to me that I think is helping patients. So we combined that with the Mirogen and um, we uh, did a two layer compression wrap. Uh, this took probably about 10 weeks to get this result. Uh, I don't think that we were completely helped because again, he, he plays poker for his, you know, that's his outlet and uh, he will not, in, well, probably four to five nights a week, he is sitting at a, at a table. I said, is there any way you can elevate? He says, no, he says, I've got to be there. <laughs> It's not cool in poker to do that. I, I, I've never played, but he says, I, I know, I'm I, assuming. I, I, have to, <laughs> I have to be able to hold my cards and, and, and be there to see. So he, this is it. But he's very thankful every time he sees me. He says, thank you, doctor. Thank you, doctor. And the nice thing was the occasionally you'll see uh, a comment from patients the first time you put it on that there may be a little bit of stinging or burning. Uh, usually after the first application, and after a couple of days, that is not, uh, it's just not something that's commented on. They, the, uh, the company seems to think uh, that it has to do with it. It's changing the pH of the uh, wound bed as it drops these ions. And uh, I don't say that I'm the authority on that, but I, I, I was warned as I started using it that you, know, you may have some patients who uh, will comment about that. And indeed I have, it's not every patient, it's probably 20% probably that, that might do that. Uh, so that might be something if you're going to use it, you just might mention it, you know, but uh, he never complained about that after the first application. And uh, he, he is so thankful that we uh, 
have gotten this wound closed and uh, he's actually scheduled for his venous ablation uh, Monday. And then we'll, we'll hopefully be able to just put him in, you know, the edema wear and the, and the, uh, the compression wraps after that. And he's, he's most thankful. I mean, you know, patients with this amount of uh, exudate, you know, that might need to have their two layer wrap changed two, three times a week. Uh, they, you know, everything gets soiled. They, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they have trouble wearing clothes and shoes because there's so much drainage. So it's, it's, uh, it's life altering. And I think the combination of, uh, the Mirogen with the edema wear with the uh, compression wraps, I think we were able to get him closed and it, it was a relatively rapid closure on this. So I mean, it looks like it was involving, I guess, a, a distal third of that, that right lower leg. So in terms of surface area that you've covered and, and healed, it seems to be quite significant, doesn't it, compared to, I guess, uh, the first patient you showed us? It was like about, uh, I want to say the vertical was, the length was at least 15 centimeters. 15 centimeters, and, yeah. And the, and the width was uh, probably about eight or nine, as best I can recall, yes. Right, and that looks like it's extending past the midline posteriorly as well, in terms it, of... It was, yes. Right, yeah. and anteriorly, obviously, there's a tiny bit of what looks like normal skin sparing anteriorly, but it's quite a large area to treat. So, yeah, well done on managing to get such a good healing result in that one. Yeah, and I think you made a great point about the long-term use of some sort of compression garment, right, in these patients, because we know the recidivism rate for a wound such as this is so high. We see these folks time and time again in our clinic, and, you know, without having a, a plan of action, once they heal, we're bound to see them again. So I think that's a, a great point that he, we he went out. And, he went out and bought four pair. Or four, Did he? Good. You know, so he just keeps <laughs> he's ready. He's ready for poker night. All <laughs> five nights. Yes, indeed. Uh, so this is a, a little different wound. It's uh, I guess putting on my reconstructive hat. So uh, elderly gentleman, a little bit. Let's let's just say mentally challenged. He was living in a group home, and uh, he came. Uh, with this lesion uh, it was highly suspicious for carcinoma, which indeed it was. Uh, it took a little while you see the dates, the, the length of... And this is on his distal nose that we're looking at, right? Is right, that right, on, right, right on the, the distal nose. nose, yes. Okay. And he, uh, there was a little delay getting him in for treatment just because of the group home situation and uh, some hoops we had to get through to get him medical clearance, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we did, I took him to surgery, did a uh, wide excision biopsy. Uh, that it, in the uh, operating room, they said I had clear margins. The permanent section, unfortunately, came back positive margins. So what you see next is I just, I had mirage and I put it on there. Um, in attempt to stimulate granulation, it's also very hemostatic. I've found so for yeah. a flesh wound, it's uh, it, you know, and, and the nose once the uh, epinephrine was going to wear off for where I had injected the the surgical side, I was worried that you know we may have an issue with bleeding. Again, he was going back to the group home; they don't have on-site nursing, and so I was just trying to be a little bit uh, you know preemptive there in doing that. So. Uh, that was, you know, it's, it's plastic surgery and we go back to the, you know, they like to teach us that uh, what we did 
to reconstruct this was the original plastic surgery, the, the, uh, the old Hindu rhinoplasty from the Sushruta papers, so 2,500 years ago. So, um, I just, just wanted to say, in terms of aesthetic subunits that were involved in this, you know, obviously for our listeners um, who won't have the benefit of seeing the slides, in terms of the aesthetic subunits, are you able to tell us which ones were involved? So it obviously looks like it's extending beyond the tip, possibly no, super was, chip, yes. and dorsum, of, it looks like it dorsal was, involvement as well. That is correct. The entire tip was gone. Uh, portions of the uh, uh, caudal septal cartilage were, were removed. Uh, basically, the entire left alar cartilage was removed, and that, that anatomic unit it was a little bit less involved on the right side, but he, he, we had to take uh, about the, well, the, the entire uh, uh, medial cruise of his uh, right alar cartilage, and then about half of his lateral cruise. And then on the dorsum, it extended basically to the uh, demarcation between the uh, cartilage and the bone on the dorsum. And this was, again, uh, here they said I had clear margins and I didn't. I had to take him back to, to take additional mm -hmm. tissue. So to do a wider excision. And then you used the dressing and then you came back and did a forehead flap reconstruction. That is correct. That is correct. Right, and right. if this is uh, the forehead flap is more on, uh, located on the right side, you can see the outline of, of the, uh, yeah. the flap. I ended up doing a paramedian flap. So it's like a right paramedian flap. Yes, because he actually had had treatment for a skin cancer. Uh, there was a large scar there. You can see kind of a whitish area just to the uh, uh, just medial to to my outline there. So we we outlined that, and uh, I got clear margins finally, and uh, we were able to elevate the flap and then uh, uh, rotate that. So I think you have the next slides that will show that. So I guess that I should also say that middle one, uh, that middle slide there shows the, the wound prior to the re-excision. Mm -hmm. um, this was on a prior one, but right on, on these, this set of slides, I have the, uh, the flap elevated. Um, I was not able to completely approximate the forehead. So I had an open wound there. Uh, I did not want to put a skin graft on that time. Uh, typically, once you rotate the forehead flap, you like to keep it in place about three weeks before you uh, divide, divide the flap and, yeah. and, and inset it. So I thought, yeah. you know, this is again a, a, another uh, donor site application that I did. Um, that's the, the central slide here. And I had about a centimeter and a half that I was unable to uh, bridge that forehead uh, donor site. So I, I packed it with, with Mirogen. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, when the patient returned for follow-up at a couple of, I want to say it's about 10 days there, the Mirogen was completely mm -hmm. absorbed. I had not cleaned that wound that you see on, on my right there. Uh, you can see mm -hmm. there were some retention sutures trying to bring it together or hold it together. I reapplied some Mirogen and uh, you know, he was going to go for a total of three weeks before we did the division and inset. But I think you can see the granulation that has- uh, Yeah, it looks pretty healthy. And it's yes. almost overcoming those retention stitches, right? So it's right. kind of butt up against them. So that's good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's 
it's coming from the depth of the wound and it it, yeah. uh, it, it looks like it wants to come from the uh, from the edge of the wound also. So, I mean, this this was that, I think I mentioned earlier, use the term robust granulation. I think this is another example uh, of that. So I think there's another slide. Impressive. It's a pretty impressive reconstruction in terms of both your, you know, the, the contour that you've matched for the nose. And also if you look at that superior portion of that, that donor site of the flap between your, sorry, can we go back one slide, Wendy? Impressive to see that donor site closure superiorly. Um, you see, it's quite a significant gap. It looks like- There still is. Perhaps yes. there was a gap of about three so or four is... centimeters. But but if you look at the, the photograph on the right, which is your, your post right. application, that's really, Closed extremely well, has it, it, it? Well, it came together nicely in the operating Superiorly. Room. Yes, and and it's uh, it's going, and that's uh, let's see, six post-operative days, five post-operative days that we're seeing on that slide. Fairly quick, yeah. yeah. That's that's mm -hmm. like I say, it's robust granulation. So uh, <laughs> we like that term. Absolutely. Yeah. So this was. Um, Correct. So then on the left-hand side, this was, uh, again, a, a, a visit just prior to his division and, and setting. And you can see the granulation has uh, basically covered the retention sutures. So that would be about, uh, uh, about two and a half weeks out. And you see a little bit of the residual uh, mirogen still sitting at the base mm -hmm. in, the, uh, uh, oh, in the glabellar region there. And then when you divide an inset, you know, what went back to his forehead was what I didn't need, uh, the remainder that's on his nose, you know, it's swollen, we expect that, you know, at some you point. You reinset back into the donor site. Yes. And I mm -hmm. thought initially, uh, when I did this case, I figured I was probably going to have to do a skin graft to close that large superior donor defect. And you can see where we were at this point. And it has subsequently gone on to, uh, to completely epithelialize. So there was no need for, for additional skin grafting. He'll have some additional revision down the road, just probably just to debulk this and, and the like. We'll give this four to six months to settle out. But you know, just from a donor side, if you go to the, the left-hand side, which is still quite deep and, and wide, uh, you know, it's it's yeah, there's there's no canyon there anymore. It it has no, uh, no, granulated itself in. And I, I think I think you, again you may get a little more uh, it, it, the granulation may be a little bit more robust or, or aggressive with a, an acute wound than it might at some of these more chronic wounds that you know we tend to you know experience um, more regularly with with our wound clinic. But nonetheless, I, I've seen it in nearly every one of them. If if they, if we can get them uh, get the bed prepared try to get it, you know, back to uh, a new day zero, and then, then try to treat. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just been a, a very, very nice tool to work with, you know, to, it, it's good to have that tool in the toolbox for, for some of these patients. And, and uh, it's been fun to learn about it. As I said, if you'd asked me in July about bioabsorbable glass, I would have scratched my head and, you know, wonder what you'd probably been drinking or something. But, you know, as I've researched it, as I say, it's been around for, you know, three decades in the, in the orthopedic space and they use it there for, it's a little different formulation, but they use it there to, uh, to bridge uh, bone defects. And I don't know, Wendy, if you've ever been exposed to that, you know, in, in, in your uh, uh, 
podiatric world dealing with uh, with bone loss, but uh, I, I talking to some of the orthopedic surgeons, they have uh, said, oh yes, we experienced that. And I understand that it really got a, a big push during uh, the first uh, desert storm uh, wound, you know, where they were taking Oh, the really? No, I don't have any personal experience with that product and that mechanism, but it would make sense from what we're discussing that it would work for osteoinduction and osteoconduction as well and, and bony defects. Again, I think it's another tool, you know, you don't, uh, you don't have to harvest skin and, you know, have that emulsified or whatever they do. You don't have to draw blood and spin it uh, to get it. It's, it's available. It's, you know, it's easy, you know, five-year shelf life. It's uh, doesn't require refrigeration and it literally to put it on any one of those wounds, it, it didn't take but a minute. Maybe I think that's an important point because I feel like the more steps to a product, the less adoption we have because it disrupts the clinical workflow and, and you know, we're, everyone's busy. You're trying to give the best care to the patients and, you know, get to the next patient and stay on track and, and you know, not keep people in the waiting room too long. So I think that's a good point. Is yeah, effective, effective, but efficient. And, and again, it, it's a, uh, I'm kind of uh, excited to see what other work they're coming out with, you know, from the uh, biofilm slash antimicrobial world, which I, I didn't show those patients, but, uh, you know, we had several here, as I say, had, you know, green drainage, green wounds, the, the odor, and within, you know, just two or three applications, that was gone, and you were no longer dealing with that pink spongy granulation tissue, you know, you had that robust red granulation tissue that you know you need to to uh, facilitate healing. Yeah, and with uh, the antimicrobial, or I should say antibiotic overuse and antimicrobial stewardship protocols that we're trying to push in our clinics, I think this might speak to that as well. So I'm curious to see what they can prove and what they show as far as that goes as well. Right. I mentioned that patient earlier that, you know, had a positive E. coli swab and, uh, you know, with a five centimeter tunnel, 95 year old, you know, you know what his circulatory system was like. And yeah, uh, not he, good. He, he closed <laughs> that without any, any antibiotics, uh, parenteral or, or intravenous. So it's oh. something else to think about. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for sharing those clinical cases with us. And, you know, we really admire the fact that you have such um, innovation and that you're so receptive to obviously improving practice by looking at new technologies. And, and Dr. Cole, thank you to you as well. Obviously you're a, a big advocate of, bringing innovative new products into your clinical practice as well. And, you know, we thank you for sharing your experience with us and, and with our listeners. So um, again, we'll look forward to looking at the further trials that you have planned, the multi-center trial. And we would love to catch up with you again once you have some more results um, in Anytime. the future as well. I'd thank you very much for your time. So. Thank yes. you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Wound Masterclass podcast. That was a real eye-opener. Yeah, that was really, that was really interesting from Dr. Johnson presenting his patients that he's uh, selected for, for this innovation. And also it was really interesting to hear the evidence behind making decisions like bringing that kind of innovation into his clinical practice. Um, so I uh, really enjoyed that. And 
it was really helpful visualizing that as well, wasn't it? Yeah, really interesting to see the variety of cases he shared with us. Next week's episode of our Wound Masterclass, the Wound Masterclass podcast, is going to be introducing another innovative concept. So we're going to be excited to bring that to you next week. Don't forget to tune in for that. And if you missed our last podcast, which was the first one, don't forget you can download it and we'll include the links down below. Yes, and you can find all the episodes of the podcast at woundmasterclass.com slash podcast, as well as lots of other stuff. So thanks for listening and watching.